Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guests are classmate Richard Rothstein and his daughter, Leah Rothstein. Richard is the author of The Color of Law and has written many books and articles on educational policy and racial inequality. Leah has worked on public policy and community change from the grassroots to the halls of government. Her policy work is informed by her years as a community organizer with Pueblo and Californians for Justice. They have both co-authored a new book titled Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. I'm joined by 20 of my Harvard classmates. Yeah, uh, Doug Shapiro, uh, I live in Louisville, Kentucky uh, with my wife. Uh, and uh, I started out uh, after graduating from Harvard in 63. I went to medical school, spent a couple of years uh, uh, in the U.S. Public Health Service, a couple of years practicing medicine in Washington, D.C. Then I got interested in animal behavior, and I went back uh, across the pond and did a Ph.D. at Cambridge University in animal behavior, spent about 15 years after that uh, studying the behavior of coral reef fishes. I was based at the University of Puerto Rico. Uh, finally, I came back to continental U.S. and uh, changed careers yet again and spent the remaining years of my active uh, work career uh, designing uh, clinical drug trials for big pharma. Uh, Bill Collins, Harvard 63, 20 years in the Navy, nuclear power, retired from the Navy, nuclear waste cleanup, now retired from doing that. Uh, living in Aiken, South Carolina, came here to work at the Savannah River site on nuclear waste cleanup and stayed. It's a nice place, mostly. Hot in the summer. Hi, I'm Joel Huberman, class of 63. Also, uh, I in Harvard, I studied science, but was also an activist in the toxin anti-nuclear, uh, anti-nuclear weapons group. And... Um, but most of my life has been spent doing science. Uh, I w became an expert in the in the uh, process of DNA replication, how cells make new copies of their DNA molecules. After I moved to uh, from my, my ho then home in B Buffalo, New York, to Peterborough, New Hampshire, ten years ago, I have become a, an activist uh, for the climate, and uh, the current form of that is to lead the Peterborough, New Hampshire Community Power Committee, which just this past month has brought in community power, uh, giving Peterborough residents more renewable energy and lower prices than was previously the case when they were getting their power from uh, the uh, utility default. <clears throat> I run Clean Air Campaign, and it's Open Rivers Project in New York City, and it's Archives Project. I'm still searching for the right fit for an archivist. Hey, and and um, have spent most of my life uh, joining and leading. Uh, battles for fairer, wiser allocation of public resources, especially public funds. 
Hi, uh, Jeff Fox, also class of 63, uh, writer and sociologist, now writing mostly fiction, living in Spain. I've been here for nearly 20 years now in Spain. Uh, and the big, our big event right now is preparing for our trip to the States for, that, for our reunion and other, and other things, seeing family and friends. Uh, Mason Morfitt, I live in Freeport, Maine. I spent uh, my working career working for the Nature Conservancy in land conservation and subsequently as a volunteer uh, with the local uh, climate change uh, action group. Uh, today is my wife's birthday, and I like to think of her as the woman who has everything. She apparently has higher <laughs> expectations, so things are <laughs> dance right now. <laughs> well, happy birthday to her. Happy birthday to her, right. Jerry. <laughs> I don't know how to follow that one, but uh, <laughs> Jerry Secundi, I live in Pasadena, California with my beautiful wife, who I'm sure feels she could have done better, but we've been married for 48 years, so... <laughs> I'm hanging in there anyway. Uh, so I'm one of the uh, 18 infamous uh, people of uh, Kent's book. Uh, after class of 63, I went to Columbia Law School, then straight into the Peace Corps in Cusco, Peru, <laughs> 1,000 feet, uh, running a youth center. And after that, went for the Department of Justice and became an environmental lawyer and actually joined an oil company. I hate to say that for some of these guys, but worked there for 28 years and Despite what you might read in the newspaper, most of the oil executives were simply ignorant of climate change when I was there. It wasn't nefarious, they just were dumb. It's, it's what <laughs> and then I went over and worked for the Audubon Society and the State Water Resources Control Board and then for a nonprofit trade association and am still working. Uh, this is David Lellyveld. I live in Washington Heights in New York City. Um, uh, returning after many years, uh, class of 63. Uh, I think I was with, uh, also in Toxin, uh, and Richie uh, Rothstein was, was in Toxin, as I recall, and uh, we were very active at, the, at that time. I'm a historian of India. I've spent much of my uh, career uh, researching and teaching about uh, India, and we've talked about that in, in the past, uh, but I have uh, also followed... Uh, uh, Richard Rothstein's work uh, with great interest and admiration. George Jones, currently living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but right now I'm in Muskogee, Oklahoma, the town in which I was born and raised. And as was pointed out a, a little earlier, I am unfortunate, or, yeah, unfortunately and sadly trying to sell the house in which I grew up, but it may be time to move on. And one of the sad parts of it, in, in addition to leaving my ancestral home, is that I'm going to have to leave a place that has some of the best barbecue in the country. <laughs> John Woodward. Oh, hi. Uh, class of 63 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I've been uh, writing and editing for a bunch of years before that in Chicago and New York area. So, um, and my wife and I met in 1960 in the Reesman seminar. So we've got a, we've chalked up a lot of years. <laughs> Yeah. We didn't get married. <laughs> Liz. Hi, uh, I'm Liz Mori. I'm also class of 63. I uh, grew up in uh, L.A. 
and uh, am now living in Tacoma Park, Maryland, just outside of D.C. I'm a almost completely retired clinical psychologist, and <laughs> also what which Hamp gets a big kick out of, uh, and also have been uh, researching my enslaver ancestors, um, who all came from Charlottesville. Um, okay, Peter. Hi, I'm an editor and writer, and I live in New Hampshire. I used to live around Peterborough, hmm. and then I moved up above the notch, as we say, to Lancaster. And uh, I'm from Evanston, Illinois, originally, along with Spencer. And uh, after Harvard, I, I lived for a year in what was then Rhodesia, and I was a card-carrying member of the of Mugabe's uh, Zimbabwe African National Union, and then uh, I, after that, I worked with SNCC in Georgia for a couple of years. Okay, Hamp. Hampton Howell, class of '63. Uh, George, you won't be able to be an Oki from Muskogee much longer, huh? That's right. <laughs> if you ever were. <laughs> okay. Um, Alden Briscoe, uh, same, also class of 63, now live in the Bay Area in San Mateo. Um, I've been having a hell of a time with technology this morning, so I'm on my phone at the moment. Okay. <laughs> Kenneth, Ken. Ken. I'm on my phone also. Oh, Hello okay. All. Uh, yeah, I'm originally from uh, Chicago, uh, Harvard 63. I'm a retired a professor of environmental law. Okay, and Kathy, tell us about yourself a bit. Okay, after Radcliffe, um, I moved to New York. Um, I married David Nelson, Harvard 62. Um, got a master's degree in labor economics at the New School and worked for um, uh, General Electric for a little while, but um, my, in 1966, my husband and I were offered two positions at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, where I was their first um, economist. Mm -hmm. And because I became an expert, in quotes, on <laughs> using census data to figure out how many people would be hurt by nuclear bomb blasts on different cities with different wind and climate conditions, which was not my favorite part of my two-part job. Um, the laboratory ended up getting a grant from HUD um, to study migration and its effect on cities. So I ended up uh, organizing and um, being sort of an assistant administrator of that project for five years. Went back, got my PhD at the new school, uh, more in urban and regional economics. Ended up 25 years at HUD in their office, their central office of policy development and research um, and became again an expert in this case, I used to be more of an expert on the fact that none of as none of you know there's no affordable housing crisis in the U.S. Basically, oh. um, <laughs> I documented how bad affordability was and how it was for much poorer people 
than HUD's programs are directed at. And I spent 25 years doing some. In my 50th reunion book, I point I say that mm -hmm. I had few minor mm -hmm. successes of marginally um, directing housing assistance at poor people, um, nowhere near as much. Okay, Spence. Hi, everyone. This is Spencer calling from Florida. And uh, I am uh, very interested in, Kathy, what you're, uh, you've spent your life doing. It's a tremendous issue of importance to everyone in this group. <laughs> and so, uh, I will look forward to it. I, I uh, briefly, uh, in one sentence, um, most of my life has been spent the first half in uh, minority economic development and uh, and equality, and uh, the second half has been spent combining that with uh, global sustainable development, the ultimate ultimate uh, <laughs> problem on earth. Thank you. Look forward to it. Thank you. Well, Richard and Leah, thank you so much for joining us. We're really happy to have you. Well, in 2017, I, I wrote a book called The Color of Law, which culminated a, a lot of things I've been writing about previously. Uh, but the book demolished uh, the notion of de facto segregation, uh, the, the idea that the reason we live in separate neighborhoods, blacks and whites, is because of... Uh, private discrimination or uh, income differences or self-choice or um, businesses that uh, discriminated. And what I, I demonstrated, I'm, I say that uh, fairly confidently because nobody has refuted this history and sort of become conventional wisdom as a result of that book, is that the reason we have neighborhood segregation is because of racially explicit public policies at the federal, state, and local levels that were designed to ensure that uh, blacks and whites could not live near one another in any metropolitan area of the country. It was racially explicit. I, I documented this very carefully in The Color of Law. And um, uh, I had a hard time publishing the book. Uh, I went to agent after agent uh, who turned it down because they said we're a post-racial society and nobody's <laughs> interested in this anymore. Um, the publisher uh, ran 5,000 copies uh, thinking that maybe he might get um, part of his tiny advance back, and it wound up selling a million. Wow. Um, <laughs> people read it. I, I went all over the country for the next few years giving talks about it, about how so, <clears throat> um, with government policy, and but they all asked, what can we do about it? So I uh, began to write a second book called Just Action, which assumes that there is no uh, national appetite, uh, political uh, will to change national policy. But um, uh, harking back to our times in the 1960s, I had a model of uh, rights activity that in communities might pursue many, many policies that could redress segregation, all of them making a small difference, but uh, adding up could make a significant difference in uh, narrowing the race, the inequality in this country that results from residential segregation. I'll just take a minute to talk about uh, uh, one of the policies that uh, I documented in the color of law. And by the way, I'm not gonna uh, 
you know, we can do it in the Q&A if people want. I'm not going to spend any time responding to last week's presentation by Richard Kallenberg. As, as I mentioned last week, I've got an article uh, coming out soon in the Atlantic that is a specific refutation to him, but we can talk about that some in the Q&A. In the color of, color of law, I talk, for example, about the suburbanization of the country in the post-World War II period. Uh, the federal government, the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration designed a program to move the entire white working class and middle class populations out of urban areas into single family homes in all white suburbs and prohibit African-Americans from doing the same. At the time, we were not a suburban country. The only people living in suburbs were affluent people. Uh, middle class, working class families were mostly living in urban areas in the same uh, communities as African-Americans, not to say that every house, every other house was a different race, but we were a manufacturing economy. People were uh, had to work in factories or in the, or the banks and service industries that uh, serviced them, and the factories needed to be located in the deep water ports and railroad terminals to get their parts and ship their final products, and the people who worked in these places had to be able to get to work without automobiles in most cases. So the federal government designed a program to move the entire white population out of those areas into the newly suburbanized uh, outer ring, or well, now, now inner ring of every metropolitan area. The example I focus on uh, in, in the book is uh, Levittown that I'm sure you're all familiar with, east of New York City, 17,000 homes in one place. The developer, William Levitt, could never have afforded uh, or found the capital to build 17,000 homes. No bank would be crazy enough to lend him the money for such a crazy project. We weren't a suburban country. The only way he could get the money was by going to the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administrations, submitting his plans for the development and making a commitment to them. And this was written federal policy that he would never sell a home to an African-American. Uh, right. The Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration even required him to put a clause in the deed of every home in Levittown, prohibiting resale to African-Americans or rental to African-Americans. And this was not just true of Levittown, it was true in every metropolitan area of the country. Well, those homes were affordable to both blacks and whites when they were built. Levittown homes originally sold for about $7,000. Today, that's about $100,000, about twice median national income. Anybody with a job in the post-war economy uh, could afford a home uh, with a, an advertised mortgage that the FHA was offering uh, at the, the cost of twice national median income. And those homes today no longer sell for $100,000. They sell for, depending on the area of the country, $300,000, dollars $500,000, uh, a million dollars or more in some places. The... Um, we passed a Fair Housing Act in 1968. It said, in effect, okay, African-Americans, you can now move to Levittown. Uh, we won't prohibit you from doing it anymore. But of course, uh, those homes are unaffordable now to African-Americans or whites uh, uh, who are middle-class, working-class people of either race. So it has created an enormous inequality in wealth. The whites, from the appreciation and the value of their homes who live in these communities all over the country, use the, the gain and equity to send their children to college, to take care of temporary emergencies, maybe may medical or uh, temporary unemployment. They used it to subsidize their retirements and they used it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren. 
which then uh, uh, you were then able to use use the funds to um, the down payments for their own homes, something that African Americans were prohibited from doing. Well, there were many, many of these other public policies that uh, uh, created reinforced segregation everywhere. Uh, de facto segregation is an other myth. We have an unconstitutional system of residential apartheid in this country, unconstitutional because these policies violated the fifth and the 14th amendments to the constitution, the 13th as well. And um, my argument at the end of the book, The Color of Law, was that we have an obligation as American citizens. If we have a, a constitutionally, um, an unconstitutional system of residential segregation, our obligation is to do something to fix it. Well, as I said, people ask what we can do. Uh, I um, recruited my daughter, Leah, uh, to um, assist me in writing a new book about what we can do. I think uh, we were just chatting before most of you came on. I, I thought that somebody from the class of 63 shouldn't plan on finishing another book. So I <laughs> took a partner and recruited Leah, who has a, a background in housing, uh, in affordable housing development, uh, as well as in community work and community organizing. Uh, she was a great partner. We've written a new book uh, called Just Action. We've also started a Substack column because The Color of Law was a history book. It doesn't change. The same history is still true today as it was in 2017 when I wrote it. But this new book, Just Action, is an ongoing uh, development. There are people all over the country taking steps to do it. There are new ideas about how to do it. And so we've started a column to update it. I, uh, I'm going to put in the chat a link both to the new book and to uh, the column. Um, I, the column is free. I hope you'll uh, read it and uh, comment on it. And uh, Leah will now um, tell you a little bit uh, about some of the local policies that uh, local civil rights groups could pursue short of a national program to make a significant dent in residential segregation. Young lady, go ahead. <laughs> I guess that's me. Um, hi, everybody. It's so nice to be with you all. Um, so I'll pick it up where my dad left off. Uh, as he said, we wrote this book with the idea and the argument that we need a new activated civil rights movement to enact these changes locally in our own communities. And that there's a lot that can be done locally, a lot that's under local control that can go a long way to redress segregation. And we we talk about dozens of policies and strategies that local groups can pursue. Uh, we don't uh, we don't try to give sort of a, a roadmap for every group because every community is different and how they begin to address these issues will be different. But we try to give enough examples so that anyone reading Just Action will see that there's a lot that can be done and a lot uh, of places to start in every community. So I'll give a few examples. Um, and I'll start by just saying that the policies and strategies we talk about in Just Action do several things. They um, We talk about redressing segregation and by that we mean both um, ensuring that we don't continue to maintain and create segregated communities going forward and also that we redress the harms of the past and we provide some remedies for the disparities that exist now due to the policies that created segregation and the wealth disparities and such that my dad talked about that already that exists now that make it hard to 
to um, create equitable communities if we don't address these harms of the past. And then the policies and strategies also encompass two main goals. And one is to increase resources and investments in lower income segregated African-American communities where the concentration of poverty is the direct result of government sponsored segregation. So we wanna increase resources in those, these communities, uh, make them areas of higher opportunity, and then also ensure that when we do that, um, we don't displace the longtime residents of those communities as resources increase, prices go up, and um, longtime residents are at risk of being displaced. So we cover anti-displacement strategies as well. So one example, of a strategy that does both of these things in lower income segregated communities is starting or expanding a land trust. So there's 200 communities around the country that already have a land trust. And what a land trust does is it acquires land or property um, and sells homes at affordable prices to lower and moderate income families. Um, they often operate in communities uh, that are gentrifying or where prices are going up. And the, the land trust retains ownership of the land underneath the house when it sells the home to the lower moderate income family. And in return, that family agrees to abide by a maximum resale price when they go to resell the house. Mm -hmm. So they um, that maximum resale price allows them to earn some equity, but not as much as they would if it was sold at market rate. And it ensures that the next buying family gets an affordable price as well. So we talk about um, the Durham Land Trust in Durham, North Carolina, that was started by a group of neighbors that came together and started organizing for issues that they cared about in their community. They started by advocating that the city turn a vacant lot into a park. And they won that and then they were galvanized and, and looking around to see what they could do to help their gentrifying community. And they started a land trust um, selling homes at $100,000 in today's money, uh, more affordable than, than homes were selling for when they got started. Now those homes sell for $150,000, which is far more affordable than the homes um, in the neighborhood sell for today. This is a neighborhood near Duke University that went through a lot of gentrification and displacement when Duke was expanding. So now um, in this neighborhood, uh, the homes or the blocks where the land trust acquired homes, um, most of the residents are still African-American, while surrounding blocks, most of the residents are now white. So we could see that this land trust was successful in not only creating long-term affordability and affordable home ownership opportunities, but also preventing displacement where it was able to acquire property in this community. So that's one example. And then the other sort of category of strategies and policies um, we talk about are concerned with opening up exclusive, expensive, predominantly white communities to diverse residents. So we could do that through various strategies like zoning reform, subsidies for African Americans to move into these neighborhoods, countering NIMBY opposition, down payment assistance, also a land trust. We talk about land trust. Um, often used in gentrifying communities, but if if there were a group in a white suburban, more expensive community that was organized um, around this issue, they could pressure their suburban government to donate vacant land to a land trust and create affordable home ownership opportunities for people who've historically been excluded from those suburbs. Um, and there are suburbs around the country that have, there's the opportunity for this. There, um, we talk about in Just Action, 
some examples, which is in Modesto, California, there's a vacant golf course that the town assumed a control over because it went out of business and they're trying to figure out what to do with it. And there's some advocates advocating for affordable housing on the site. You know, the town could donate some of that land to a land trust to provide affordable home ownership opportunities there. Also in Woodbridge, Connecticut, there's a vacant country club that the town now owns. Same, same deal, it could, it could use that towards these aims as well. And in a lot of suburbs around the country, there's, um, you know, public school enrollment is declining. And so there's vacant school sites that could be used, uh, donated to land trusts to create affordable home ownership opportunities. So those are a couple of ideas. We also talk about um, section eight as another example of a strategy that can be used to um, sort of make exclusive communities more inclusive by um, making it easier for section eight tenants to use their housing voucher to move into these more um, higher opportunity, more exclusive communities. And there's ways to do that. And um, one is ensuring that the locality has an anti-discrimination ordinance on the books that, that makes it illegal to discriminate against tenants who use section eight vouchers to help pay their rent. Um, this is a legal form of discrimination on the federal level, but a lot of states and cities and counties have passed what are called source of income discrimination laws <clears throat> to ensure that when a voucher holder tries to rent an apartment, they aren't denied just because they have a voucher. And so passing that law is the first step, and then a community group can help ensure that it's enforced and monitored by supporting excuse me, often fair housing organizations or civil rights organizations that do that kind of work. Um, there's also ensuring that the voucher amount itself is enough to be able to afford a unit in a higher opportunity area. So there's um, 180 housing authorities around the country that are required to use a payment standard that makes vouchers go farther in more expensive communities. Um, but every other housing authority around the country can voluntarily do that. So a local group could work with their housing authority to help adopt this, what's called a small area fair market rent standard to ensure that, because where that standard isn't used, um, a voucher amount is capped at, at the median of a whole metropolitan area's rents. So it means that more than half of the rents in a metropolitan area are out of reach of voucher holders unless this small area rent standard is adopted. And this is all, you know, these are all things that are under local control that a local gr group could advocate for their local housing authority, local government to adopt these changes. Um, in our book, we came across a group in a private firm in outside of Dallas or in Dallas that is a mission-driven for-profit company that buys single-family homes um, in high-opportunity areas around Dallas with the purpose of renting them to Section 8 voucher holders to provide um, housing opportunities for them in these higher-opportunity areas. And because these small area rent standards are used in the area, they can make a small profit. Um, there's a community outside of Dallas called Providence Village that um, this, you know, there were I think a hundred or so voucher tenants in this town of 2000 houses that um, were renting homes using section eight in this community. And the, the home ownership association recently voted to ban section eight tenants from their community. And so they were all given eviction notices, 
even though the landlords were happy with their tenants and you know wanted to continue renting to them, um, they were served eviction or uh, eviction notices. And there's been a lawsuit for it, so the the that order has been stayed, and they they don't have to leave yet as it goes through the legal process. But um, it, this is another example of first where landlords are using their power as landlords to ensure that Section Eight tenants have 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 opportunity to live in these higher cost, more exclusive communities. And this is also an example of where there were an organized group working on issues to redress segregation in this community of Providence Village or in the Dallas area. It could find the residents in that area who don't support the HOA's view that Section 8 tenants should be banned. And I'm sure there are several of them, including the landlords we've talked to in that community and organize them to um, oppose this move by the HOA and then also to oppose it in other communities in the area that are considering similar bans. So those are uh, just a couple of quick examples. Our book is full of a lot more of them. And what our hope is in writing it is that even though this, you know, the, the issue of racial segregation of our communities, it's intractable, you know, the whole book of color of law is, de you know, detail after detail of all the government policies that went into creating it feels overwhelming, but we hope that with just action, it, it, there's a little more, there's some more hope in what we can do about it and that there's actually a lot that can be done. Um, and once we get started in our own communities, we can start to um, challenge, challenge this uh, way of being that we think is, is normal and acceptable and start to make change. I'll just say real briefly, everywhere in the country where there were war plants during World War II, migrant workers, black and white, flocked to these centers of war production to take jobs that didn't exist uh, during the Depression. Everywhere, the federal government had to build war housing, and it segregated neighborhoods, communities that had never before been segregated by building separate housing for whites and blacks. San Francisco thought of as being this uh, liberal area. In San Francisco, there were hundreds of thousands of workers working in the shipyards of San Francisco and then on the East Bay as well. The federal government built five projects for war workers, housing projects for war workers, four were for whites only. There were very few blacks in San Francisco in the, before World War II. It was the second great migration. So it built four projects for whites only, one for African-Americans only, that project became the black ghetto of San Francisco. And that's how San Francisco came to be segregated because of the federal government's participation in war housing. The new book is about what we do about it. Well, I, uh, just very quickly, I would like Richard and Leah, uh, one or both, uh, to say something about the issue of gentrification. Uh, I know here in uh, New York City, uh, it's very controversial. Uh, 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 middle class or wealthy people moving into uh, uh, Harlem in particular is what I what I know. Uh, there's a lot of objections among my uh, black friends uh, uh, to that. And the laws are such that uh, uh, people can claim a low income and get advantages um, because they just graduated from college and their parents give them uh, money. Uh, and then they uh, are able to uh, to move into very desirable houses that were supposedly set aside for for low income pe uh, people. So it's uh, it's quite a fraught uh, subject, and uh, it goes against uh, 
uh, a, a model of uh, integration uh, uh, in, in some sense. And it's hard to talk about it, but I'd, li I'd like to know your thoughts. Yeah, we talk about a lot of strategies to um, mitigate some of the harms that come from, from gentrification. We argue that um, it's unrealistic to think that we can increase resources and investments in a lower income community without then attracting higher income residents to it. So we can't prevent dis uh, <clears throat> we can't prevent gentrification entirely. But as it happens, there are things that can be done to prevent some of the displacement. Um, as you mentioned, like building lower income housing, so inclusionary zoning laws that require that when new housing is built in that neighborhood, some of the units are preserved or set aside for lower and moderate income families. And there's ways to make that a more effective tool of anti-displacement and racial integration by making those units giving preference to um, they can have racial preferences or preferences to families or households that are at risk of being displaced from the neighborhood or have been displaced. So that's a way of getting around this sort of loophole that some um, not truly low income households are, are getting access to those units. There's also other strategies like um, protecting renters from rapidly increasing rents and from unjust evictions, a, a pretty simple sounding you know, approach is providing legal representation for renters that are facing eviction. So most renters, when they get an eviction um, notice, <clears throat> there's a court date, the landlord shows up and most tenants don't because they don't know what to do and they don't think that it will help. And it usually doesn't because the courts usually just kind of rubber stamp all of the evictions. We talk about in Cleveland, they started a right to counsel program which was a partnership with the United Way and the Legal Aid Society where they provide free legal counsel um, and notices to people as they get eviction ordinances that they have a right to counsel. And it's um, prevented a lot of evictions and uh, help, they can help renters get um, funding for back payment of rent or help address you know, maintenance issues that have led to their not paying rent and help prevent evictions from going on their records and staying in their units if they want to. So um, you know, pieces of the puzzle that can be addressed as gentrification is happening. And that's in the book. That's yes, it's all in the book, yes. Okay. I want to say something about something that's in the book, if I may, something that's in the book. We picked out two bands. This was a, the book went to press, uh, you know, the final writing was done over a year ago. Uh, 2022, spring of 2022. We picked out two banks that were notorious, one in uh, New York, one in uh, Los Angeles, that were notorious for uh, issuing mortgages to development companies that uh, purchased multi-unit buildings, but whose mortgages penciled out only uh, if there was an income stream that would uh, be based on higher rents that were presently being paid. So these were mortgages that were issued on effect on condition that the uh, present tenants be evicted and higher income tenants be um, recruited. Uh, what do you think the two banks that we focused on were in the spring of 2022? <laughs> Take a guess. Let's see. The one uh, Bank, Bank of America. No. Uh, All right, I'm not going to waste a lot of time Francisco. with you guessing. The two banks were Signature Bank in New York and First Republic Bank in San Francisco. 
And there are photographs of demonstrations of community groups in front of both of those bags in the book, uh, based uh, long before recent events of those two banks. So that's how the, that, that was their business model, Signature Bank and First Republic. Marcy. Good. I'm glad to hear uh, that you've gone into that. I wanted to ask you both um, what else you say about the role of big real estate and um, the building trades, unions and contractors, um, all of whom have been phenomenally successful at every level of government in extracting massive resources to create the land use and transportation patterns that support um, the kind of business model Richard was just describing. And and also uh, the billionaire real estate um, speculators who were buying uh, land and buildings in Harlem 50 years ago, right up to the present, mostly white, but some black. The question is, do the books address these, what I think of as big picture, big player forces? Well, I'll just say that, you know, the, the book's theme is that we have to start somewhere and start small. And we don't have instant remedies for the national picture. But if community organizations investigated the banks in their communities to see if they were following this model, if they were financing developers that required an income stream that couldn't be supported by present rents. That's something that these banks could be pressured on. Um, you know, as I say, the, my, in my mind, it's the model is the civil rights movement to the 1960s when we did this kind of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. George. Today, today, too many people have gone to graduate school and gotten PhDs and master's degrees and they, they don't, there's nobody in the streets anymore. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, there are. <laughs> Maybe not being led uh, the best possible way. George. I would like to hear a little bit about your rebuttal to Kallenberg. All right, very, uh, very briefly. Uh, uh, Kallenberg advocates uh, using uh, wealth as a preference in college admissions, race-neutral wealth. There are several things that are uh, wrong with that argument and why it won't work. Uh, one is that uh, although uh, a higher share of African-Americans have low wealth than the share of whites, whites are so much more numerous in the population that the share of low wealth families who are African-American is relatively small. Mm -hmm. And so you give a preference to low wealth families, you're not gonna get very many African-Americans. Yeah. And you're gonna get even fewer because low people with similar low wealth, whites and blacks, are not in the same circumstances. Yeah. Low wealth uh, blacks live in more disadvantaged neighborhoods than low wealth whites. Uh, middle class blacks live in worse um, uh, resource neighborhoods than middle class whites. You take people of the same wealth uh, in the middle income wealth or low income wealth, the African-Americans are likely to live in neighborhoods with greater poverty rates, 
than uh, the whites uh, with identical economic status. What that means is that uh, uh, people of similar wealth, take people of similar wealth, the African-Americans are going to be much harder to qualify for college mm -hmm. than um, uh, uh, African-Americans with low wealth. The other problem with, with the argument is that the people who are most deserving of race-based affirmative action at competitive universities, at selective universities, are middle-class African-Americans, not the poorest African-Americans. Middle-class African-Americans, say in the second wealth quartile, below the median, but not in the lowest wealth quartile, middle-class African-Americans remain disadvantaged by the kinds of policies I was describing before. As I just mentioned, they live in, in neighborhoods that are um, more poorly resourced, that have higher poverty rates. Uh, their schools are more impacted than um, uh, middle-class whites. And uh, that's because of a history of racial discrimination by the federal government, unconstitutional. And the notion of, of basing affirmative action on, on diversity as opposed to remedying past the effects of past unconstitutional discrimination is wrong in law and in principle. So uh, if you use low wealth um, as, a, as a category for affirmative action, and this is a very brief summary of, of my argument, but uh, if you lose low wealth, I, I'm almost uh, certain I could guarantee that it will not increase the share of African-Americans uh, in the way that um, race-based policy will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. John, yeah, you're you're touching right on the question that I wanted to raise, which is I think we need a two prong approach because, as you say, the the damage that has been done to the poor uh, black communities and others is so is severe and has been uh, has has gone over time too. So that you know, call it lumpenization, whatever you want to call it, but whatever it is. It has to be. There have to be measures that um, that fix that approach that problem, and those people may not necessarily right now be ready to move into other kinds of neighborhoods. There have to be massive problems to fix the schools and the housing where the people live right now, and you know, and in addition to knocking down the uh, se segregation patterns. Mm -hmm. Good. Yes. I agree. Uh, Kathy. Thank you. The, the book is absolutely fascinating, and I can't wait to read it. And then I hope I can get in touch with Leah and Richard and give you more feedback, because there's so many things I want to say. But um, your your recommendation for putting more emphasis on section eight is is really spot on and two um there are, are quite a few ways to improve section eight um one of them is what one of the ways i became an expert on the unaffordable housing is by making estimates of how many renters had so-called worst case housing needs which um was uh, being homeless, living in severely inadequate housing, or paying more than half of their income for rent. And surprise, surprise, Blacks are, are overrepresented among that group. 
and among the um, most overrepresented, unfortunately, are families with children. Um, and their part of the problem is just that there aren't enough, uh, for Section 8 particularly, there are rules for how many bedrooms you need to have per children. And there aren't that many units that have large, you know, have two or more bedrooms. And um, the, one of the efforts uh, completely underfunded at the moment to overcome that is the so-called National Housing Trust. And that is was supposedly going to get funded with profits from um, uh, the GSEs, the government-sponsored enterprise, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, back in just before 2008 when they stopped making profits. But now there actually is getting money, some money, and um, the uh, formula that directs the use of those funds is the one I recommended back before there was a National Housing Trust to do a better job of, of directing other housing funds to neighborhoods who need it and metropolitan areas who need it. So I still think and hope that that's a useful program. Um, let's see. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to mention is that after a, a lifetime of, of going to um, Protestant churches that had good social justice programs, which means I've been to a lot of different Protestant churches over my lifetime. I am now a Presbyterian and our church in Falls Church, Virginia, which is um, too, too much and knows it's too much all white, but is trying to be welcoming both for um, LGBT and um, and we have active black members. We've, we're trying to become a so-called Matthew 25 um, church, which is a national Presbyterian effort to um, for three initiatives, one of which is overcoming racial segregation and helping blacks. Another is fighting poverty. Frankly, don't remember number three is because the first one is one they're concentrating on, and the second one is the other one I think we should be concentrating on. And the final thing I'll ask as a question for Leah and and uh, Richard is that um, here in Falls Church, we're just outside Arlington County, which has just finally passed a middle missing middle. Um, thing to uh, change single family zoning to allow um, up to six units per parcel. And I, I guess uh, a few other places are doing the same thing. And um, some of us who live here in Falls Church, which has only got 14,000 people, so we can't do much on our own, but there are a lot of people who say they are concerned about affordable housing and so we're trying to do the same thing in our city. And do you have any feedback on them, uh, what the whether or not the missing middle is a useful approach? Oh, and before I, I'm sorry, I have a a meeting uh, appointment with to my audiologist at one thirty to mm -hmm. get my hearing aids checked. 
And so I have to leave soon. And I just want to say how delighted I am to have joined you generally and specifically how delighted I am to be here at the time when you're dis discussing the color of law and your follow on book, because the color of law is one I have cited frequently in discussions at our church about um, how important it is for what we're trying to do is. Thank you all. Thanks, Kathy. I'll just respond really quickly. We have a, a whole chapter in the book about missing middle housing and how important it is that it's a misconception to think that most African-Americans are poor and in fact, most fall in this uh, middle income and, you know, can't make too much for to qualify for low income housing and too little to afford market rate. And so we really need to also address that missing middle housing need. And one way of doing that is zoning reform like Arlington has done. I understand after a long fight there um, that was rather ugly. I keep hearing about it. Um, but other communities, states uh, uh, have passed zoning reform, California, Oregon, um, other cities have. So um, there's movement for it. And the, we don't know yet if it will result in more integrated, desegregated neighborhoods. But we argue it's a first step that's necessary. And then other additional steps have to ensure that it is a tool for desegregation and integration. Otherwise, um, it likely whites will end up living in those missing middle housing and white neighborhoods unless there's an additional step to ensure that African-Americans have access to it. So, Let me be blunt. We need affirmative action in housing as well as in university admissions. You cannot solve racial crimes with a race-neutral policy, even good policies. And uh, in missing middle housing uh, is unaffordable today to uh, working class families of either race. And without affirmative action and specific uh, targeting and, and preferences for African-Americans in these few units that are being developed, they'll be outbid by whites, mm -hmm. places like Arlington. So, so Richard and, and Leah, how does the substack stack work now? How does that work? Well, I put a, I put a, a link in the, um, yeah. in the chat. And I can send it out again, an email to, to uh, you know, all you 63s. Um, but uh, you simply click on that link and there's an option to subscribe. It's free. Leah and I are going to alternate writing columns. Uh, she wrote the most recent one. It's a fascinating one about a community group in, in Menlo Park, California. I wrote the previous one. My next one is going to be uh, uh, this response to Kallenberg that I keep telling you about. But if you click on that link, um, there's an option to subscribe. It's free, and you'll get the the columns in your inbox um, from that point on. Uh, right. I don't know if you're if if you're all uh, on the chat, but uh, I can send it out an email as well. Okay. Thanks. So, so you say you're gonna you're gonna send it to all of us. Uh, the, uh, no, good. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Basically, right. like a newsletter when we. Oh, good. Post something it gets delivered to your inbox if you subscribe, and it's justaction.substack.com. Well, I think it's a magnificent. Your other book, the first one, is should supplant American Dilemma as the book that nails what the country uh, has done and is doing. Explains much more the reality than any other book I've seen. 
Well, um, I'll tell you this to you, 63s. Uh, in 1963, uh, in the government department where I concentrated, uh, asked me what I wanted as an award for, you know, graduating um, at a high rank in the government department. And I picked the a copy of The American Dilemma, which I still have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you guys so much for coming on. It's really been great. Yeah. Thank you so much. And we'll have to do it again. Thank okay. you. Thank you. I'd see you. Bye-bye. That was our classmate, Richard Rothstein, and his daughter, Leah Rothstein. They have both co-authored a new book titled Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation and Acted Under the Color of Law. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcasts also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>